Hi, I'm Benjamin Studebaker. Hi, I'm Alex Canavos, and this is Political Theory 101. So today on Political Theory 101, we're talking about John Locke and piracy. See, John Locke was in the late 1600s, in 1696, appointed as one of the eight founding members of the Board of Trade. And one of the things the Board of Trade was tasked with was dealing with pirates. So we're going to talk about pirates and how John Locke's political theory relates to the issue of piracy. So to get us started, uh, it's a basic, basic John Locke. For Locke, there are divine natural laws. These laws are discoverable by reason, right? Similar to Aquinas or the Scholastics there. Their divine authorship makes them obligatory. So the fact that they come from God is what makes it such that you ought to follow them, right? From these natural laws, we can infer natural rights. And the natural rights are pre-political because they come from God, so they cannot be taken away by politics. We are entitled to rebel against states which attempt to violate systematically our natural rights. Locke also argues, however, that our psychological motivations are hedonistic and that we fulfill the moral duties because doing so has pleasurable effects. So the reason the moral duties are obligatory is their divine authorship. But in point of fact, we are only able to follow them because there are pleasurable effects if we follow them. So if we... Uh, some people are able to find following the moral duties intrinsically pleasurable. They get joy out of doing the right thing. Other people may not be able to find following the moral duties intrinsically pleasurable. And those people have to be subjected to rewards and punishments from the state or from God to align their motivation with their duty. So there's secular punishments from the state, and then there's also the threat of uh, divine retribution in the afterlife. So Locke says in Essays on the Law of Nature, those who refuse to be led by reason and to own in that matter of morals and right conduct, they are subject to a superior authority, may recognize that they are constrained by force and punishment to be submissive to that authority and feel the strength of him whose will they refuse to follow. So, this is the role of punishment. It's to align your motivations with natural law. Now, when he gets assigned to the Board of Trade to talk about piracy, he's coming along in an era when it's quite common for Spanish and Portuguese theorists to argue that parts of the ocean can be claimed by states. And I don't just mean, say, the part of the ocean that's part of your continental shelf, but just vast tracts of open ocean can be owned or claimed by particular countries, right? Uh, Locke argues that property rights come from nature, but he holds that there's a universal right to use the oceans. 
for travel, for trade, and for fishing. So while land can be owned, the seas cannot. This important distinction enables a lot of lax uh, imperial theory. Uh, Now, even though you can't own the sea, you still can't violate natural law at sea because natural law is pre-political. It doesn't require that the sea be under the jurisdiction of any given state. So when you are at sea, theft, violence, tyranny, all of that is still impermissible. And since pirates break natural law at sea, they're not okay, even though they commit their crimes in a jurisdiction that is not under any particular state. Alex, do you have a thought here before we go on? Yeah, I know you always clarify that natural is a term that slides a lot, but it does seem like if we call something a natural law, it's just referring to the most general, uncontroversial, kind of obvious principles in politics and not really anything specific. So yeah, people break laws, we should punish them. Or if someone kills another person, then we have a right to either enslave or punish them by death, that kind of thing. Yeah, here the term natural is really being used to say that it it's still in force regardless of what is going on politically. So much so that if a state breaks natural law, it is the state that is wrong. Right? If the state is systematically violating natural law, the subjects can judge that and rebel. It's a development from Aquinas then, because the state can't answer to God. Well, it can, I guess, in his version, but not pre-politically, I guess. Only It can only answer to God while God is inside the state, in the priesthood. So there's no right of resistance, well, is what I'm saying. Yeah, for Aquinas, it would never be, as we discussed in the De Regno episode, it would never be acceptable to uh, for for ordinary subjects to try to judge what is natural law, to try to judge what counts as systematically violating natural law, to put themselves in the position of the ruler. Yet Aquinas says that individuals have reason, and in the same way that Locke says, they can discern quite easily whether someone's acting like a wild animal or someone who can live in a society of men, i.e. someone who obeys natural law. Yes, so there is this argument in Aquinas that you can potentially eliminate a tyrant, but you're only supposed to do it through some sort of political means with some form of political legitimacy behind you. It's not given to you in Aquinas that you can judge for yourself that someone is a tyrant and privately decide to murder them on that basis. You have to be doing it in some way as the public figure, as a public figure embodying some kind of public realm or institution or structure. Uh, So that heavily circumscribes legitimate tyrannicide. However, Aquinas, as we discussed, he gives an example, the killing of Domitian, which is not obviously a constitutional or institutional killing. It's people who are affiliated with the state doing the killing, but it's not clear that they are acting within, say, their legal or constitutional rights. So this hole in Aquinas with tyrannicide, this vagueness about tyrannicide, allows for a certain drift. Now, Someone like John Locke, he's not a Catholic. In fact, he says you can't tolerate Catholics. You can tolerate many kinds of Protestants, but not Catholics, Locke says. So, uh, yes, uh, he, he kicks out Catholics and he kicks out atheists. He says that Catholics are loyal to a foreign power 
and therefore you you can't tolerate them. Okay. And he says that, uh, yeah, and, and similarly, atheists are completely unreliable, so you, you can't to- tolerate them either. So even though Locke is associated with tolerance, it must be, uh, you must remember that it, this extends only to types of Protestants. <laughs> uh, so Locke says uh, that Catholics are, are not okay. So he's not going to be bound by the particular account of all of this that, say, Thomas Aquinas gives. He's well into the Reformation. So uh, Aquinas's account doesn't bind him. Nonetheless, because Protestantism is an offshoot of Catholicism, it's a, what, it, what is being protested is Catholic doctrine, lots of elements of Catholic doctrine make their way into Protestantism in various different ways and in various different forms. And one of these is the idea of natural law. But you'll notice here that you know, natural is just really, uh, it comes from God and it's pre-political. It doesn't have any of the kind of uh, theological weightiness that it would have in an old scholasticist Catholic account, right? It's, it's just, it's pre-political and it comes from God and, and that more or less gets the job done for Locke's theory. Part of the attraction of this is that it's relatively simple. It doesn't have as much uh, theological overhang, but yet it is clearly a religious view, so clearly attractive from a Protestant perspective. Well, that makes sense? Yeah, so individuals now have the right to really, yeah, make claims against the state, and yeah. what's, yeah. Yeah, it's got to be systematic. You can't just, it's not just the state has broken uh, the law of nature or has violated natural rights. It has to be systematically doing it, right? Same So it's got to so. be purposefully and, and, and right. Pirates systematically violate and they also use you know, violent aggressive force, right? To take property and violate property rights. Oh, oh no. Right? So uh, to, to come back to the issue of the pirates. So Locke was, was very pro-trade. He supported trade. In fact, he was an investor in the Royal African Company, which traded slaves, right? So, uh, Locke did not like piracy, in part because piracy interfered with the slave trade, which Locke made money off of. So, he supported a tough-on-crime policy against the pirates. He supported removing colonial governors who failed to deal with them. He supported using the navy to go after pirates and he also supported impressment conscripting people into the navy so that they could be used to fight the pirates so in his 1697 essay on the poor law he held that the poor were less rational and therefore not entitled to political participation but that's not an argument for natural slavery he doesn't argue for natural slavery, slavery like Aristotle does. In the two treatises, Locke argues that slavery is okay only when the slave has used aggressive violence. This includes those who wage unjust war in violation of natural law. Those prisoners of war that are taken can be enslaved for Locke. He supported transferring convicts from England to the colonies for use as indentured servants. He's cool with that. 
And then impressment also is okay, because it's a form of military conscription. Well, it's okay by the These, colonies, but not by the East India Company in certain jurisdictions. I, I don't want right. to interrupt that too much. but Yes, that's a, a good qualification, Alex. Yeah. So there's uh, this argument that slavery is not natural, and it's only okay when the person has done certain things. But Locke is an investor in a slave trading company, which certainly enslaved people who... Uh, we're not in an unjust war or uh, committing crimes. Locke doesn't suggest that you can, just because somebody has done something violent, enslave their family and their friends too. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm still recovering from a cold. Uh, so, <clears throat> so, whew, my voice always starts to go this time of year when that happens. As in you, right. you can't enslave family and friends, right? Because they didn't do anything wrong. Right, they didn't do anything wrong. And the kids they as well. They didn't commit the aggressive violence. But of course, the slave trading companies did do that. They enslaved indiscriminately, right? And he didn't mention uh, that now, so much. He only mentioned yeah. the penal slavery, which kind of allows him to avoid the issue, maybe, of Atlantic slave trade. Right, now, theorists who talk about this, they try to make sense of it in a variety of ways. So some of them argue that Locke really isn't trying to talk about the African slave case at all, that his discussion of slavery is mainly about English people who are indentured servants, who are impressed, who are uh, convict prisoners, and that it doesn't apply to Africans at all. It's just not about that case. Others argue that you could try to contort certain aspects of this to make a case for African slavery from Locke's point of view on the grounds that you know, many of the slaves that were taken were taken in wars among African states, that those African states, you know, from Locke's point of view, because of the way he's concocted natural law, uh, are in violation of natural law. So when they fight wars with each other and capture each other's people, they might be allowed to do that uh, on the basis of Locke's theory. So some people try to make Locke an apologist for African slavery, in his theory, as well as in his praxis of investing in a slave trading company. Uh, other people argue that his discussion of slavery is not about the African case. But if it's not about the African case, that would seem to imply that Locke thought that Africans were of a different kind or type. And that would imply a racial attitude, a racist attitude for Locke. Whereas if his theory applies to everybody and to slavery everywhere, then the theory is not racist per se, it's just another theory which makes an argument for slavery, not all that dissimilar to arguments for slavery we see in Aristotle or Aquinas, right? But if he's not talking about Africans because he thinks Africans are inferior, then he has a racist attitude. So either Locke is making a general apologia for slavery, or he's a racist, who thinks different standards apply to different groups of people. It's not totally clear which of these is the case. I'm not sure it's a general apology, but I also want to push a more sympathetic maybe view. But if, yeah, if it's not it. uh, an apology, well, if it's, if it's an apology, does that mean it doesn't work? Because obviously the Atlantic slave trade didn't just enslave um, lawbreakers or unjust, yeah, unjust uh, war, people who started an unjust war, it enslaved families and descendants and stuff. So it can't apply to that because there's no natural law breaking. 
So he must be a racist, right? But Well, so uh, this is where I think you could talk about the theory of property and how it works. Okay. So Locke's theory of property makes a lot of space for the invasion and conquest of people in different parts of the world. Because the theory of property says that we own our bodies, and when we mix the labor of our bodies with things, they become our property, right? Only if we mix it with enough value so that the yeah, right. it can't be so a we have to value. add value in some. Yes, we have to add value. And we cannot claim more than we, we can use. We can't claim so much that we allow some of what we've claimed to spoil. We can't claim so much that there's not enough for others, but we can, provided we're adding value, mix our labor with things to, to claim them as property for life. Now, if you have not mixed your labor with things and you try to restrict people's access to it, or you try to act as if you have property over it, then for lack, you're violating natural law. So if, say, you're an indigenous people and you don't farm arable land, you don't have a claim on that land, and if you try to prevent Europeans from coming to that land and farming it, then you are trying to maintain a property claim that you are not entitled to maintain. And on that basis, you're breaking natural law for luck. So indigenous populations that don't use the stuff to a standard which satisfies a European don't own it. So even if they do mix their labor with it, if they're not adding sufficient value to it, I'm really glad you added that. If you're not adding sufficient value to it, even if you do work the land, say you hunt on the land, it's your hunting ground. Well, you're not adding enough value relative to someone who farms it. So you can still be dispossessed on the grounds that you make inefficient use of the land. Right? Now, there are qualifications. You can't claim more than you can possibly use, and you can't claim so much that there's not enough for others. The introduction of money for Locke makes it much easier for people to claim more property than they can use, and it makes it much easier for them to claim so much that there's not enough for others. And money has a large role to play in creating a need for civil government to prevent the abuses of our natural rights. Could you explain why, in the state of nature, there's a, a clause that says you can't acquire property if it's... It's called the sufficiency clause, if you harm someone else. But that goes away with currency. And why would currency get rid of that clause? Well, it's not clear that currency gets rid of these clauses. So there are some accounts of Locke which want to argue that once the currency is introduced, like McPherson's account, for instance, once currency is introduced, all the qualifications on property go away. And those were just there at the beginning of the theory before the introduction of currency. So once you're talking about a society with currency, none of that applies and you forget about it. Because people don't get harmed once you're in a society or not enough to justify some kind of clause? Well, at that point, it's under the civil law. Okay, yeah. Yep. Right, and so it's... But I think it's being suggested here the state is meant to protect natural law, right? And if natural law involves certain rules about what you can do with property, that law is natural. So it's, it exists regardless of what kind of political condition is ongoing. 
So I think the people who have a two-stage view of this, where there's before, there's the state of nature, where there's a set of rules, and then there's the civil institution, and then the rules are different. I think that doesn't really fit with this being a natural law theory, which takes these laws and these rights that we have to be pre-political and to exist regardless of the, of the political formation that we have. I guess it's easier with hindsight, though, to say, you know, look how limited that view of productivity is, just something that you constantly add value to, like compound interest, as opposed to, yeah, what a Native American would say. But I guess at the time, you could be more sympathetic because, yeah, they had comforts of life and the natives, I suppose, didn't in the same way. So, In terms of how you establish a government, uh, universal consent is necessary to establish a civil government. But once we consent to join a civil community, we cannot withdraw from it, mm. right? We can rebel if the civil government is violating our natural rights, but we can't withdraw from membership of the civil community, right? Or of a press pirate gang. Majority consent is necessary to determine the form of the government, but the government itself does not have to be a democracy for Locke. It can be a monarchy or an aristocracy, as long as the monarchy is founded on majority consent. But are, are you leading back to the slavery? Well, I'm just, I'm just kind of running through oh, cool. this aspect of the political theory right yeah. now, just so that people have it, right? So once you've established this state, it can be a monarchy or an aristocracy. The majority consent, some people think that because he says that, that he's demanding democracy. But that's not true. A majority can authorize a monarch or a set of aristocrats, right? Is it always the case that when people agree on the peace, even if it's just one ruler, that ruler always has to act in the common interest, regardless of what era you're in, in political theory? Is there always that kind of first principle? No, no, because common good or common interest, is that an idea that's in every political theorist's corpus. You know, someone like Joseph Schumpeter casts doubt on the existence of a common good. But he's, when he's talking about politics, he's talking about everybody. So he's talking about the common and he doesn't want it bad. So it must be the good. I know that's a bit silly, but do you see what I'm getting well, at? It's like a, com a collective benefit. And then there are people like Nietzsche who don't think that there is any such thing as the good. So of course, there are some political theorists who don't think in those terms. Right. Anytime we try to say every political theorist thinks the same way, we get into trouble. But it's almost like saying, does does no one have normative or ethical commitments? And it's like, well, of course they do. They might say they don't, but, you know. Yeah. Some people claim that they don't. And so we have to acknowledge that some people claim that they don't or claim that there's no such thing. They're moral anti-realists or, or subjectivists or what have you. Uh, that certainly exists as a position that people affirm. Whether you can affirm that position in a uh, non-hypocritical way is a separate question. I guess I'm pushing this because maybe from a cultural standpoint, people might idolize piracy or say, look, it, there's parallels between the golden age of piracy and, and modern, uh, you know, the pirate bay, intellectual property pirates, those kind of things. And you could romanticize it. But I don't know if that's a serious take. <laughs> well, you certainly, uh, some people do romanticize piracy, but of course, Part of the reason you have piracy is that you have people who are so poor that they are driven into lives of piracy because there isn't enough property for everybody in this civil society. And it's it, what else do you do with, I guess, 
roaming people in the countryside, if you don't have enough money to spend on poor relief and you don't care about, you know, prisons that maybe stop reoffending, I guess the easy solution is to export them to colonies, you know, so... Or impress them into the Navy and use them to police the ones you failed to impress into the Navy. Yeah, and is there any alternative? I mean, to modern ears, it sounds crazy, but in Locke's time, what else could you do with just unemployed people who are at danger of, I don't know, I don't know, just crime? It sounds sounds awful. Well, there used to be, you know, in in ancient societies, the there were, were a couple of options you could discuss when you had a surplus of people, so many that you couldn't, uh, that they, or if you had a distribution of property that was so uneven. Yeah. So they're kind of, those are two ways of framing it, right? One is you just have too many people. And another is that you have an extremely unequal distribution of property. Because the way I was framing it made it sound like, oh, it's their fault, you know, too many people. Yeah. Whereas the other one's like... Well, if you think it's too many people, then you end up saying you have to send some of them out of as colonists. Well, yeah. Right? Or you have to enslave some of them to prevent them from drifting into lives of crime. Right? If you think that it's that there's a extremely unequal distribution of property, then you start talking about things like land reform. <laughs> right? Yeah. And... Well, maybe it's a diversion, but what were the kind of economic opportunities for pirates in plantation colonies specifically? Why were they so popular? Because I heard they would go out to the Red Sea, plunder, then come back all the way to the Caribbean and just live a plush life. I don't know why on the plantations there's not much there. There's just slaves and a few owners. <laughs> I mean, well, I, I wouldn't say that it's a posh life. Oh, you know, plush, pirate, plush, not posh. The pirate yeah. life gets glamorized, but the pirates are you know, kind of like. The mob today, the mob gets glamorized, but in point of fact, your know, mobsters come into piles of money, spend it very quickly on luxuries and are living a life that's violent, often shortened by violence in fear of the law, moving from place to place. You know, just like contemporary organized crime, you can make it sound glamorous, but in point of fact, it's a set of people with not very much education coming into large sums of money, spending it on uh, extravagant luxuries, uh, you know, blowing it in a weekend, or and then having to go find more of it. And every time you have to go find more of it, it's dangerous. And every time you're, you're constantly in fear of being caught by the authorities, unless you've managed to pay off the governors to leave you alone. Is it, is there like a modern parallel to impressment? Maybe because I think during Locke's time they tried to get rid of impressment that lasted a year so that it would just be a few months but they didn't have enough people or manpower they couldn't pay the wages of the widows or the workers so they just decided to impress them for a whole year and then i guess the abuse of that is when your year's up you just get transferred to another ship and you keep fighting and you never come home well yeah the exception is that there's nothing else for people to do and if they aren't impressed then they'll do something uh worse and this assumption that the poor are less rational that Locke has uh, plays a role in this way of thinking. If you think the poor are less rational, then they're not going to be capable of, say, doing what's good because they find it intrinsically pleasurable. They'll have to be motivated by rewards and punishments. Yeah. Would it be naive to say the same amount of money that goes into protecting the shipping uh, and pr- against pirates could be used to spend domestically for, I don't know, just... Yeah, employment opportunities or even cultural, like growth. Well, 
state capacity in this era was not as great as it is now. Um, but certainly, say, in Roman times, there were lots of different things that were explored. In, in these kind of primarily still agricultural societies, because lack exists before industrialization, uh, it is possible to do, say, grain doles or subsidized housing. Uh, but ultimately, the way of getting security is to find some place for people to have a small, self-sufficient farm, uh, homestead. And oftentimes, you could promise that to soldiers, say, if you served for a certain amount of time, you would get a piece of land. Or perhaps if you're invading territory, when the invasion is finished, the land will be distributed among the people who participated in the invasion. A lot of, of that is common in antiquity. The reason that these things are offered is that there is not no appetite for land reform. People don't want to redistribute the land. So they say, oh, we'll go get new land with empire building, right? Or if you join the army, there will be land for you at the end if you survive. But we certainly won't be very careful with you, right? Yeah. These are the arguments you end up getting from people who make large amounts of money off subjugating the poor because they don't want to redistribute the land in such a way that you could more easily sustain the population without crime and without political contestation. Uh, generally, if anybody tries to do land reform, these people have that person murdered or accuse that person of being a demagogue or a wannabe tyrant or someone who disrespects property rights. Right. So for Locke, because he has this theory of property, and where the Lockean theory of property gets really difficult is the intergenerational aspect. So for Locke, for instance, if you become a slave, uh, if you have children, your children can be born into slavery on the basis that uh, the parents were slaves. For Locke? Yes. So not, not the two possibility. Locke. Yeah, there's this possibility of, of children being born into slavery because they're born to people who are already enslaved. See, I thought the contradiction with Locke's slavery was that he called servitude uh, he called slavery servitude in politics, but he made a conceptual distinction elsewhere. As in, oh. well, so sometimes he's talking about indentured service. Yeah, right. Indentured service uh, is uh, what we what he calls drudgery, a kind of servitude which is time limited. And you different to it, I suppose. Yeah, if it's indentured servitude, then it's time limited. Uh, Although Locke makes an argument that indentured servitude doesn't need to be time limited, that it could be for the whole life of the person, potentially, that you could sell yourself permanently into slavery rather than just for a defined time if you agreed to it. Because your body is your property, you could sell it. Right? Uh, but if you are a slave and you have children, then those slaves are born into slavery because once someone is a slave, they are absolutely and totally under the dominion of the master for Locke. So it, absolutely and totally and irrevocably. I was wrong to say his theory of slavery was just a penal one then, just about people who had broken a law and as punishment were indent made indentured servants. It's not about that. Yeah, no, it's not just a penal. Okay. No, no not just penal, no. There's uh, 
discussion of indentured servitude as distinct from slavery, but there is also discussion of slavery outright. Hmm. Right. So, for instance, convicts, prison convicts, convict slaves, those are not indentured servants. Those are convicts who are enslaved because they've been convicted of violent crimes. Oh, yeah. They're not made right. servants. They're made slaves. Again, my bad. Yeah, right. Thank you. They're not servants. Okay, yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, with it, there's a whole lot of room in this theory for people to be subordinated to other people. And there's got to be because if you have this kind of theory of property, then once somebody sells their property to somebody else, uh, the next generation is not entitled to the same claim of land that they would have been entitled to at the time the land was dispersed. So that the, the thing that really becomes difficult in Locke's theory of property is, okay, everybody mixes their labor with the land. They leave as much and as good for the next generation, right? Uh, well, not for the next generation, excuse me, for their neighbors and for everybody else who's around. But once everybody has children, then the plots of land start getting divvied up among the children, right? And they get smaller and smaller to the point where yeah, plots of land can't sustain uh, a, a person's life anymore. They don't produce enough food, not even, I'm not talking about necessarily enough food to subsist, but they don't produce enough food to live off of, to sell some, to pay for housing and to pay for other things you need. You can't get an income, a livable income off the land anymore. So then you sell the land because it's not providing a livable income for a lump sum, which will carry you for a while. Then your own children, you know, they don't have any land. And once you blow through the lump sum, they don't have anything at all. So intergenerationally, as soon as you go a couple of generations or you have any population expansion, the Lockean theory of property quickly produces a situation in which, through legal property transfers, you now have a situation in which many people do not have enough, many people do not have as much and as good, they have no opportunity to mix their labor with anything, everything is already claimed, everything is already owned, right? And if everything is already owned, and you take something that someone else owns, now you're stealing from them. Now, he could say that the way that the state is supposed to manage this is with land reform to make it so that as the population expands or as new, you know, uh, that there's some level of transfer of property so that new people are able to have their chance at being a landowner. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he says that the poor are less reasonable than everybody else. And it's kind of implied that if you ended up poor, it's because your ancestors made bad decisions. They mismanaged their land, or they sold their land when they shouldn't have done, right? Or they were lazy and failed to claim any land. So because there's something wrong with your ancestors and you end up with not much land, there's some kind of implication that you're less reasonable on that basis, right? And since you're less reasonable you won't be intrinsically motivated to do what is good and therefore you have to be punished by the state and incentivized by the state to behave. And that might mean that the best thing that can happen to you is that you're impressed into the Navy 
see how this theory well i mean he talks about apprenticeships it's funny the only context he talks about it is in naval impressment he says if a, a, a child is under 13 or something they should have a nine-year tenure that wasn't an, a minor writing it might have been unpublished uh, i think it was or a journal is called atlantis yeah but it's interesting the only apprenticeship opportunity given to working people is uh yeah naval impressment it's quite funny yeah but yeah yeah uh, this land reform oh, oh, theory at sea it doesn't it no the theory of land doesn't apply to sea so well is it because the sea's meant to be common so well the sea's got to be common because if the sea isn't common then it's not possible to conduct trade mm. right you can't have people sailing all over the place trading with different territories if large chunks of the sea are controlled by particular states. But you can own the resources that come out of it if you mix your labor in with it, but not the territory that in the sea where those resources came from. So if you were to plunder a ship right. or to get some fish in a certain zone, you wouldn't own that zone, but you would own whatever you extract from it, especially if you can mix enough labor in to extract a lot more than naturally available. Because then it's like you're pr right. productive. And this yes, you can own the fish that you catch, but you can't own a zone of the sea for fishing. But I kind of don't like applying this theory of property to the sea because obviously Locke wrote it for the land. It just feels like we're applying yeah, something that shouldn't, a different category. Right. So The reason that I mention the theory of property here is because of the role the theory of property plays in creating conditions under which you impress sailors. Yeah. Back, right. Yeah. And so once you're impressing sailors because you have large numbers of people who don't have property and you can't give them property without stealing, according to the theory, right? Now you have people who are forced into piracy because they have nothing else that they can do. And then you have other people that you're impressing and putting into the Navy so that you can control the pirates. The scandal. Right. That's how you end up getting into this situation where you have pirates and then you have people conscripted into the navy to fight pirates and the, both of them they're drawn from the same group of people which is the people who according to the theory are less reasonable because they're born poor because they come from families that made mistakes in the management of their property or when he says though that they need employment and they need to be yeah and particularly the able-bodied need employment um what was i going to say I think, yeah, I think it's more about the fact they're, well, just the, the, no, it is about moralizing and judging them. I thought maybe it's to do with idleness being bad and just being a, a dreadful existential well, idleness state. Idleness being bad is a form of moralizing and judging. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, because it's all, right? all about what, how because much you can produce. And if you're an aristocrat and you're uh, engaging in some kind of Aristotelian leisure and making art, or you're sitting around That's and idle, instead no, of mixing no. your labor with the land, you're you know, making rules from the board of trade, right? Uh, if you're engaged in classical leisure, then of course that's virtuous activity. But if you're poor, because the assumption here is that the poor are less reasonable, they can't use free time to do anything worthy. Therefore, their free time is just idleness. Classical leisure and entertainment, that distinction is helpful. They still think yeah. in that terms, in those yeah. terms. Well, if you think that certain groups of people aren't capable of using their time well, then you end up having to say that those people, when they have free time, must just be wasting it. 
And that's the argument about the poor here. So they need to be given something to do. And if you can't find work for them, then you might as well impress them into the Navy before they cause trouble. Maybe there's a a, def, not a respect in the sense that it has to be the most able-bodied people and the fact that they constantly, and still today, enlist pirates or lawbreakers to service the state. William Kidd, I mean... Oh, yeah. Oh, endless. Now, this is a whole other side of it. Privateers, which I don't think there gets a whole lot of run in, in Locke. Now... What? Did you see anything about privateers in the book? Well, he was involved we've been practically, writing? but not theoretically, I think, because he, he pushed for the governor of New York to replace the previous one uh, for corruption and supporting piracy. And yeah, I, I, there's, there's, like, there's a lot of exchange between them. I don't, I, yeah. So here, here we're talking about kind of the local authority structure. So part of what allows piracy to happen during this era is that local governors will strike up deals with the pirates where they won't fight the pirates. And maybe they're bribing the pirates or maybe the pirates are bribing them, depending on the balance of forces between the two sides in the area. But a kind of convenient arrangement is struck up so that the state doesn't have to fight the pirates. Similar to relationships between, say, local police and the mob in American cities where, you know, there's mutual bribery of various kinds in lieu of fighting and the feds, when the feds come in and they want to make the local police fight the mob, they have to break that up and get rid of the corrupt cops in a, in a similar way here, the governors that are in with the pirates have to be gotten rid of, but privateers are different because privateers were not just sponsored by say governors. It's not that these governors are hiring the pirates to be their Navy these governors are making deals with the pirates to not fight them. But the British crown also did engage in hiring privateers, in hiring pirates to fight, right? The thing is, if you're impressing sailors into the Navy, an impressed sailor is not that different from a pirate. And if you, you can induce a pirate to perform the role of the British Navy, how different really is that from impressing well, the governor... Instead of using the stick of impressment, you're using the reward of some kind of financial incentive to hire the pirate into some sort of legitimate work. Yeah, the colonies would endlessly complain to the board that Locke worked on that there's no difference. The navies were impressing their people. Yeah, not just their slaves, but right. their, yeah, their workers. Their- right. So why not just make the pirates part of the navy or... Uh, you know, make the Navy part of the pirates. Uh, it, the distinction gets blurry when you have impressment as the way that you take people into the Navy. Uh, this, by the way, continued to be an issue for some time. So we're talking about the 1690s here. Impressment continues to be an issue in Atlantic politics into the 1800s because it's the impressment of Americans by the British Navy, which is one of the contributing factors for the start of the War of 1812. One of the contributing factors. There were others, like the fact that the Americans wanted to invade Canada because they thought that the Canadians would love to be U.S. states. Uh, But one of the the reasons that's always given in American history class, where we focus on the nice reasons, uh, is that the British were impressing Americans and forcing them to join the British Navy when they weren't even subjects of the crown. 
to fight Napoleon. Alex has a thought, I think. No, it was just the, you know, the governor of New York. I think you had to replace Fletcher. I think it was, it was Bellamont and he replaced Fletcher and he was a Whig, a replace a Tory. And the big scandal was he supported William Kidd to be a privateer to attack pirates. And of course they gave him poor terms. So his crew mutinied and he came back and well, was executed. And it was a scandal for Locke and the Whigs and all that. But I don't know how I was going to work that into a theoretical point on privateers. I mean, yeah, just, I, I guess it backfires, right? When the state enlists lawbreakers. Well, when you have a theory like, like Locke's, which says that it you know, kind of tries to explain away poverty on the basis that the poor are less reasonable. Then you have this kind of moralistic view of where poverty comes from. And if you have this moralistic view of where poverty comes from, then you approach it from a kind of discipline and punish point of view, where you're looking at either finding ways to uh, force people to do what the state wants by conscripting them, or you're trying to encourage people to do what the state wants by offering them money or other benefits to get them to behave, right? But do you seriously think... If you think about... Oh, go ahead. Oh, I think you should finish. But I was going to say, do you think you can support the other position? Well, the other position would be that it's not because the poor are less reasonable. It's because you have a system of property that, by its very design, produces large inequalities. Over time, if you have two farms, right, and each of the farmers has a different number of kids, right? Say on one farm, there are two sons, and on the other farm, there are five, right? If that happens, then when the original owner of the farm dies, if the farm gets split five ways versus two ways, then the two who have the larger plots of land will be in position to buy out, potentially, the five. Or if it doesn't happen then, it might happen in the next generation, when the five turns into 25 and the two turns into four. And that doesn't make them better. Uh, it, it doesn't make anybody better. Just the fact that you have different numbers of kids. Is it better if you have a primogeniture arrangement where you just kick all of the other children out of the line of secession except for the firstborn to keep the farm together? Does that make you better? Uh, the issue with any kind of agricultural property system is that as populations expand, Land gets divided up into small bits. People end up having to get bought out. And the people who are in position to buy out are just those who are in position to buy out. It, it doesn't necessarily mean that they've run the land dramatically better. They may just have had a different number of children. Is it luck of the draw? There's an inherently destabilizing aspect to intergenerational property transfer. That's why we have so many lawyers who are employed in the managing of trusts and estates. It is difficult to transfer property from one generation to the next because you so often have multiple different people who are potentially in line or potentially have a claim on the same one thing. And their claims may be roughly as good as one another's. Why should one end up with it rather than others. The reason that in you know, medieval societies in particular, the tendency was to prefer primogeniture is just for the purposes of stability. If the property stays together 
all in one kit, then it can't be broken up into smaller and smaller units to the point where all the landowners can be dominated by external third parties. But in those medieval societies with primogeniture, it would be expected that whoever it was that was managing the land would uh, come up with something good or useful for the people who are not going to inherit to do. You know, maybe they become priests, then they wouldn't have children of their own to, that they'd need to support. You know, maybe they'd become uh, knights, maybe they'd become military commanders, maybe they'd go join holy orders. You know, they, they would be given something to do. But if you just cut people loose, because you don't have the kind of family that can maybe support that kind of, you know, sending someone off for the kind of education that a priest would need, or sending someone off to, uh, you know, in, in some military context, maybe there's no war that you're fighting, maybe there's nothing to, to do, maybe you survive the war and afterwards you come home, what are you to do? Uh, if you're from a family that doesn't have the kind of money that those big aristocratic families would have, then of course what happens is that you get kind of kicked into the street and made to fend for yourself. Could you be in locks? And maybe you could find a trade, but what if you don't have a skill because you grew up on a farm where uh, you weren't expected to learn a craft? Uh, it's just a lot more complicated than these theories of, of property which suppose that the people who are poor kind of deserve it and the people who aren't poor must have made better decisions suggest. But how could Locke build that understanding into a theory of property? Because he surely was aware that a lot of, yeah, it's luck. Well, I think part of the trouble is that luck starts from a kind of state of nature position that's pre-social, pre-political. And he doesn't just do that with his theory of property. He does it with his whole theory. His whole notion of natural law is pre-political from God stuff. If you have a pre-political category then everything has to be reduced back to the base pre-political element. And all politics has to be justified in terms of whatever you've taken to be pre-political. So the pre-political is fetishized in political theory. If there is something that is pre-political, everything has to be justified in terms of that thing. So whenever a theorist says this is natural or this exists before politics or this is essential, that is the thing ultimately that you're going to have to answer to in the theory. So, of course, in a lot of theories, it's going to be God. But then if you associate a lot of different principles with God through something like a system of natural law, then it's those principles, those units. And so since he starts with a set of individuals who are in a natural state, he has to start with what those individuals in a non-political context could potentially think, feel, or want. So this causes him to think in terms of pleasure and pain. And it doesn't, he doesn't think of these individuals as politically constructed. The emphasis is not on, uh, on that. So I think the way to avoid having this kind of theory is to think of nothing as pre-political, to view as Aristotle does, the political is baked in from the beginning and as always there. Is that consistent with the viewpoint that things don't really change, though, fundamentally? Well, things change because the political is dynamic. 
But this principle of change is always there. Things are always changing. Well, things, and therefore politics is always adapting to change. Hmm. That's maybe too vague. Maybe external things don't change, but maybe behaviors or personalities or activities don't change, or even principles. Obviously, I agree that essential X and essential Y, like if one of them's God and one of them's property, you're going to have two different theories. So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, they all well, if you if you have something like uh, like the good or the god or God, right? If you have a big concept like that, then there's the question of what does that concretely mean? What should you concretely be doing with that? How would we pursue the good or pursue God? If you build up a set of stuff that you're going to associate with the good or with God from the beginning, a kind of dogma around it that is uh, not going to be something you'll consider revising. Mm, you can't change it. Yeah, You can't change it. That constrains the political theory heavily, heavily, right? But if the good is itself something that we pursue together collectively through some kind of political process, then our understanding of it can change and we can understand it in different ways. So it sounds like you're, mm, I don't know, more procedure than substance. Well, it's all about how we do it, I think, not what we do. Yeah, because we can't be sure about the substance. If we try to, to yeah. concretize the good, if we try to say a lot of things about it, or, and this is the apophatic aspect of the good and of God that I think oh, is... In the, yeah, in the Neoplatonist episodes. Yeah. Important. Yeah, and that we've talked about in the Neoplatonist episodes, right? So for you know, Iamblichus or for Plotinus or for Plato, for any of those guys, there has to be some kind of politics which unlocks the possibility of philosophy, unlocks the possibility of theurgy, unlocks the possibility of, of trying to make things uh, go. You know, Aristotle, one of the things that aggravates me about him is his tendency to use this concept of the natural. Because when he says some people are natural slaves, some people are natural masters, he bakes in something that is potentially changeable or potentially revisable, or it might just appear that way because of the context, Right. Plato, when he talks about the, the drones in the Republic, you know, he talks about a set of people who, because of the way the city has evolved, because of the cycle of regimes, a set of people are dispossessed, and then some of them become beggars and others become thieves, right? Some of them are drones with stings and some of them are drones without stings in the Republic. But the reason the drones come about is not because these people are, are inherently worse or less reasonable than the people who existed in Callipolis in the ideal city. It's only because the city has deteriorated. And as the city has deteriorated, the conditions in the city become worse, and the conditions make the people of the city worse. So there is a kind of man that Plato associates with each type of city. So as the city decays, the kind of man that it produces decays. So it's not that there is one fundamental kind of man, or even just three fundamental kinds of man, of men. But that cities themselves change the kinds of men we get, uh, the uh, distributions of different kinds of men that we get if we want to talk about kinds or types, right? So, it, what, what gets me about Locke is that Locke ossifies a set of, of rules about property into nature, uh, uses that to constrain what you can do, and then 
you're put in a political situation where the rules of property have created a social and economic problem that you're not able to treat as a social or economic problem because that would conflict with the rules that have been indexed as part of nature. So you're instead forced to treat it as this kind of moral problem, and you're forced to go about trying to solve it by uh, enslaving people in various ways as a way of coping with and Plato talks about how, you know, as the city degrades, it will be forced to enslave the lower part of itself. It will be forced to turn the producer class from free friends and helpmates into slaves. That's not because that is the necessary, good, normal, or ordinary way that things go. For Plato, it's because the city is decayed to the point at which it's no longer able to cooperate with itself without instituting these heavily coercive structures to compel the behavior that it used to be able to get freely, right? Is it fair to say you're kind of saying that this all starts when you grasp at some object like X, like the natural, as opposed to just grasping in general, because when you go for the particular thing, it's like a construct or an ego, or it limits all the other realities. But if you're just grasping in general, then the only thing available is what's true, I guess. And it can change. Yeah. You're more receptive. Once you're or? dissatisfied with the, with the final end, because you feel that the the good or God or whatever you take it to be, once you feel that that is insufficiently specific, not concrete enough, not precise enough, and you start giving it specific qualities, then the fact that you've given it those qualities precludes the possibility of it having other qualities. And so to say that it is this is to ignore silence or diminish the respects in which it is other things or is not just the thing that you've said. Is that bad for me to do? Because I kind of just reduce politics to like a, a theory of personality in a way. Like it's about ego and what I claim, what I identify with as an inherent unchangeable thing. And the other approach to that, which I don't know. Well, it's kind of, yeah, there's a question of micro foundations and macro foundations. Oh, like individual versus the good. Or Right. So we've talked about this a couple yeah. of times, how uh, in different ways, but it's good to revisit as a theme, uh, how... If you're thinking in terms of the individual, then everything has to be justified back in terms of the individual. So if we have a pre-political individual in the natural state, then what motivates the individual before they go into politics? Well, the desire for pleasure, the fear of pain. Uh, because you're pre-politics, you're you know, pre-social. It can't just be status competition by itself. It can't be a desire for uh, uh, good by itself. It's got to be uh, the stuff that would be there even if you took away large aspects of what it actually means to be a person, right? because the natural state involves excluding a lot of things that are always there. Even in extremely primitive societies, there's tribal politics, there's family politics. Uh, so, yeah, some people like to start with this kind of deracinated individual in a highly stylized environment, and then build up from there. Because if you're in the body and you're focused on the body as a separate and distinct thing, then you're going to focus on, well, what is, is clear to the body? You know, like when Descartes goes, well, I can't be sure about all these other things because they're external, but I at least know that I think, right? It's this focus on starting with me and what I am sensorily sure of, right? The other direction is to start from a, a big unifying concept like the good or the one, which all the things that we discuss as parts participate in. If they all participate in it, then what we are seeing when we look at the parts is how the whole 
is exhibited in the part. So instead of saying that the whole is constructed by the part in service of the part, that the part is what's real and the whole is a construct, you can go the other way and say the whole is the thing that is real and everything that is part of the whole is just an aspect which participates in. Do you think that would mean that each part, you could see it with infinitely more, I don't know, uh, variations maybe, because you would see it as more versions of the good, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. And that's how every part looks kind of wonderful. If you're not just taking it as a part, uh, as as just a, a thing by itself, but you're taking it as part of something that is big and, and all-encompassing, then you can see aspects of the all-encompassing in the parts. You see a good person, you are seeing the good itself it reflected in the behavior of the person. You're seeing the way the person participates in the good. And so uh, there's a specialness to that because it's it's the whole of the universe is being exhibited in the behavior of any given person. But, that, but I guess that sounds quite abstract. I also meant like if you were a policymaker and you yeah. understood, uh, maybe you looked on one part and you actually saw that could be five or 10 parts. It's just, we need to find more inclusive roles for this part of the, you know, of the community because you have that all expansive yeah, view yeah. of the good. You might have, yeah. See more versions for each. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you're the policymaker, you can see a person who is not fitting into the society as an estranged part, rather than as a person who refuses to uh, submit. Uh, they're an estranged part. And how have they become estranged? It's not because they are inherently not a part of it or inherently not reasonable or, or whatever. There's some reason that they've become estranged. And if you can find that reason and rectify it in some way, then you might bring... Uh, the part back into alignment. But then I don't see how this differ from Locke because surely Locke could say the pirates have gone astray from their natural reason, which allows them to discern what natural law is. And so they're not inclusive. Well, see them, their, their natural reason, them, their thing belonging to them, right? Their individual so it's, discernment. It's individual discernment. But if we don't think about it in terms of individuals choosing or not choosing to submit, if we think of it instead as uh, what people are able to do is determined by the conditions that they're in, the conditions that are created politically, right? Philosophy is only possible if there is access to leisure and education, right? And you know, whatever other kinds of social economic arrangements are necessary to create that leisure time and that access to education, Uh you know, then whether or not someone is doing philosophy is not based on whether or not they are reasonable enough or good enough or or what have you. It's to do with whether they experienced that kind of thing. Uh, and if you don't think it's philosophy that's possible, you know, whether or not they are participating in theurgical rights, it depends on whether there is this whole political economy for making theurgy possible. You know, philosophy and theurgy have this economic dimension to them that gets ignored when you make it a kind of personal morality story. It's convincing to lean on the determinist stuff, but do you want to get rid of free will completely? And then... Well, me, I, I don't think there is free will. You don't see it in pre-Hellenistic Greek thought. It doesn't come into the debate until after Alexander makes contact with the East. Uh, after Alexander goes to India, uh, you don't see the concept of free will in Plato or Aristotle as such. It comes in later on. 
Does this have any bearing on? Oh, actually, no. You should continue. And if you want. well, that's okay. really you know, all, all I have to say about it. For I mean, we could have a whole discussion of free will, and perhaps we should. We're just over an hour. Perhaps we should do an episode on on something to do with free will at some point. Uh, I have some ideas about things we might do. We might discuss that after we get off. But yeah, I don't really think there is free will. Now, that's not to say that I think everything is determined. I think there's randomness. I think there is a zaniness to what occurs. And I don't think you can predict it. I think it's there's contingency. But I don't identify randomness as freedom. Freedom, to me, implies yeah, a specific uh, individual dictating what occurs. Uh, and if everybody has free will, then everyone would need some capacity to dictate what happens. You know, when people say agency, uh, which I kind of like to deny, I like to say, well, I don't really think people have agency. If you take that seriously as being able to make certain things happen, well, we do things, but uh, the reasons we do things we often don't understand have to do with all sorts of other things in our society and in our experiences and in our uh, you know, genetic makeup and in who we are in all sorts of different senses of that term. And then there's all these random elements to what we do that aren't explicable. Uh, and the effects of what we do are difficult to predict because we have limited knowledge and because there is so much randomness in how things turn out. So I, I think oftentimes, especially in contemporary society, we focus on agency or free will or autonomy, in part because many people fear that we don't have that because we live in these gigantic uh, bureaucratic societies where individuals have very little influence over what happens. A lot of stuff is determined by market systems or state bureaucracies uh, or natural uh, you know, uh, environmental events. There's a lot of stuff going on that individuals have very, very little ability to influence. And even the people that we think of as powerful people, you know, they they got in, you know, if they get in through an election, they that takes an enormous amount of luck to be, say, elected president. So many things have to go right in one's life, and they can quickly go wrong. And individual presidents very rarely are able to do all that very much with the office. If you look at the thing, offices that you think of as important, social roles that you think of as important, the actual ability of particular people to influence the overall trajectory of things is extremely, extremely limited. But in part because people are uncomfortable with that, they fetishize their individual autonomy and lean into it and, and try to talk it up, uh, in part to, to avoid having to think about the degree to which we don't have a whole lot of scope anymore. And what's interesting is that when Plato and Aristotle were writing, of course, you know, a, a particular person could be Lycurgus, could be the lawgiver in the city and all of that. But Plato and Aristotle didn't think of Lycurgus as... as um, exercising free will he wasn't framed that way mm. but he was drawing yeah they, on his own courage they maybe, discussed yeah. it as a kind of fortunate fate, oh, fortunate thing. fate. Uh, you know, they, it, fate yeah in the republic it's well just because the city has fallen you know to such a low point you know that's it's a tyranny doesn't mean it's not impossible that someone might come along who would be able to reorder it or to make a new city in place of the one that has fallen yeah, it's not impossible. Yeah. There's always a chance. But the emphasis was on the, the spontaneity and generativeness of things. It was not on, oh, you know, someone will, however, have the will to overcome this situation. That's like a boom-bust cycle, a cycle of regime change. 
Yeah, yeah, the cycle of regimes, as as Plato describes it. But it's it's not a oh yeah somebody's going to come along and and through their will uh, you know change everything. It was oh but you could be lucky and somebody could hop along who happens to have the particular skills qualities necessary. Uh, and you might happen to get lucky and happen to get another city that is is better and more functional for a while until it too falls down the cycle of regimes. Uh, it was about, there's an element of, of profound randomness to early Greek thought especially. But I think it, it stays in, in the classical tradition for quite a while. You know, this, this emphasis on fate and divine grace in Christian theology has a certain element of this, this whether you, you happen to get the grace or not, uh, you can't command it. Theurgy can invite it, but it can't command we it. We have Roman law and we have pirates as the enemy of, or is it the pest, the common pest or enemy of humankind? Obviously, these acts aren't committed by fate. So, Oh, well, yes, the Romans were had all sorts of issues with pirates. You know, Pompey Magnus was given command to go after the pirates. Uh, I'm talking about the, the philosophy here, which is not necessarily what was implemented politically in ancient societies. The politics of actual existing ancient societies, while it would sometimes draw on what philosophers said, did not uh, necessarily produce what philosophers were so after. In other words, people have been blaming individuals and thinking there's free will. Most people, but let's say the philosophers in ancient Greece were less inclined to think that or didn't think that. So there's a division. So well, it's an elitist thing initially or not. Well, you know, the Greeks also had this idea that uh, animals could commit murder and objects could commit murder. Why? <laughs> right? Because evil is something oh, which does not exist in any particular person agentically. It just exists in the polis and it can manifest in different things occurring. It's not like physical evil, right? not moral evil or not. Like, it's just kind of built into the universe as a principle that's not really bad. Yeah. It's just kind of, well, disorder. I don't know. Yeah, or, or that some kind of, of evil spirit okay. or, or malevolent god could be just compelling or working through okay. different animals or different objects. So if you have that way of thinking about it, you know, it may still be the case that the way that you deal with it is to put you know, the animal on trial and execute it. But that's not because the animal has... Uh, you know, agency or free will. And the, the Greeks did this, by the way. They put animals on trial for crimes and, and would execute them. Consistently? They did this very wow. often. Uh, animal trials. It's a fascinating... Wow. It, you, it gradually went away. It took many hundreds of years for animal trials to go away. But even into well into the Middle Ages, they still occasionally... And that occurred. wasn't a proxy. Oh, maybe I'm going on, but... but yeah. <laughs> A proxy for just criminal trials, but between humans, like, oh, your dog came onto my farm. Now I'm going to prosecute it and then get some of your. No, no, it was it was a, a genuine worry that there was uh, evil that existed that was not down to some particular person, but was just in the community and had to be expunged in some way. So the trial is kind of a right to expunge the evil. The execution is a kind of ceremony to get rid of the evil rather than. You know, a punishing of the agent. Yeah. There's a lot of scapegoating going on. So, I mean, in all in all history, yeah. so that I can understand why. Maybe. Yeah, it's a it's a different way of viewing of viewing things. But we'll talk about many different ways of viewing things. We'll we'll go on doing that in subsequent episodes. I think we've probably come to the end of this one. Thank you guys so much for listening, and have a wonderful rest of the day. 
Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>